them pulled up here. No, no, but you don't have what I have. I edited the uh, description. Oh. Oh. And I gave a little more background on Trader. Yeah. Okay. Uh, are we recording? E- I think so. Okay. So I'll, the do the, flashing. I'll do the podcast intro. Great. Hey, welcome to Full Cast and Crew, which is a podcast that chooses a film and goes down the rabbit hole of its IMDb Full Cast and Crew page, mining it for surprising appearances, unlikely connections, weird trivia, strange quotes, fractured takes, and quirky off-kilter digressions. Full stop. Full stop. <laughs> You're going to edit all this into some sort of... Yeah. Seamless, absolutely. Or you, or you could leave this part. You never know. People like that surprise part, me. That behind the scenes kind of yeah, behind sort of BTS, Brechtian. as I call it in the business. Well, Brechtian or behind the scenes it depends on your level of intellectual. I don't want to say pretension, but I, um, sophistication. Sophistication. That's yeah. probably right. That's more more accurate. And, okay. And anyway, go ahead. Uh, this week we're talking about. Uh, this week we're talking about a light sleeper. Paul Schrader's brilliant study of an alienated urban denizen skirting the borderline of madness, starring Willem Dafoe as John Latour, a rich, upscale drug dealer for Manhattan professionals. When his boss, Anne, Susan Sarandon, tells John that she is planning to abandon the drug business for herbal cosmetics, sort of a lateral move, John's life is thrown into disarray. Coincidentally, he runs into Marianne, Dana Delaney, an old girlfriend and former addict who has returned to New York to be with her dying mother. When the murder of an Upper West Side woman involved in a drug transaction has the police scouring the town for suspects, John thinks they are following him, and the strain upon his life and his hopes for the future become harder and harder to bear. Schrader, of course, is the writer and director uh, behind such films as Taxi Driver, Blue Collar, Raging Bull, The Last Temptation of Christ, Affliction, Bringing Out the Dead, and the recent First Reformed, starring Ethan Hawke. Light Sleeper has been rated 89% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. I threw that in just to encourage people to watch the movie. Which they absolutely you know? should. I just was uh, reacting to your note you have underneath that. I was like, yeah, maybe I'll end there. <laughs> Well, yeah, those are my personal notes. Exactly. We'll, we'll get into those. It'll come Although, up. actually, that note, I came to disagree with my own note somewhat. Yeah. We'll get there. Okay. Uh, so, anyway. Jason. Yes, Chris. What do you think? Uh, well, I mean, you're. is this the first time you've ever seen this movie? This is the first okay. time I've seen it. Um, well, we should probably start with you, because I've seen this movie many, many times. Wow. Um, I, I remember when it came out, mm-hmm. because um, I think Willem Dafoe was still a relatively young actor, and I think yep. I'd seen him in something else. So when I saw, like, oh, he's going to be the lead in this thing, I was like, oh, the intriguing. Mm-hmm. But then just sort of missed, missed it, it and yeah. never. And I, I loved it. I've seen a lot of Paul Schrader's work mm-hmm. since then. Um, he is such a strange filmmaker. He is. Uh, and this is such a weird time in New York that yep. it's capturing. And Willem Dafoe, as a, as a leading man, is always so... He's such a character yeah. actor, and he brings that to yeah. his lead roles. I totally agree about him as a lead actor performer. It's almost weird and off-putting, which I guess is the point. Yeah. I know Schrader has said that this is uh, his third Man in a Room movie mm-hmm. with Taxi Driver, Travis Bickle, and um, American Gigolo. Mm-hmm. So the three of them are sort of of a piece for Schrader, which I can see. Yeah. Uh, these disaffected, alienated Men who hate their jobs, interestingly, they all have that in common in mm-hmm. their own way. Um, it's 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 such a strange movie. Like you said, it captures this part of New York. And also, to me, it, it captures, not that I'm an expert on the drug culture or drug dealing, 
but um, it's so specific in capturing this character and Defoe's character for people who haven't seen the movie is a drug dealer. One of the descriptions I saw online that I thought was so apt was uh, Defoe said he played a drug dealer who sold white drugs for white people, which I thought was so apt yeah. because it's all the bullshit of, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're selling and using drugs, but not really. We're having fun. We're the fancy people. We're the beautiful people. But really, you're just drug addicts and users and drug dealers. One of the things that I love about Trader and also can be maddening, I guess, the specificity of, of these these moments. There's so many moments where Latour, Defoe's character, is is doing a, a drug deal in a in a supposedly fancy nightclub. I'm thinking of the one where he goes and meets two girls in a nightclub mm-hmm. and he's just making small talk after he does the transaction and he says, So where's the so what's on for tonight? Kind of he's so desperate for connection, he's kind of a little bit trying to invite himself along to this fun evening with these two girls. And just the way the actor does it is so well, she kind of just goes, oh, oh, just a party. And there's like awkward silence and he takes his cue and he gets up and leaves. Like they don't want you around. They yeah. want you to deliver the product and go. Yeah. And there's so many times where that happens, whether it's Tease, uh, this is the Victor Garber character, uh, kind of putting his arm on and like just shoving him out the door. Um, and his whole, the whole movie, he's looking for this acceptance and connection, which of course he never gets until right. ironically the very end. You're absolutely right that it is such a strange specific kind mm-hmm. of thing and here he is so disaffected. But there is part of it that also seems to be right for the job. Yeah. In the sense sure. of, you know, the one of the first scenes you see him do an actual deal and the yeah. pretend camaraderie so that yes. they can find an excuse yes. to shake hands and, and push the stuff. That layer of it just makes that that Brilliant. much more interesting that he's probably unsure of how much uh, how much of it is the put on that the job needs sure. versus his own real feelings. And he seems to be so disconnected from yes. his, his real well, feelings. It's, it's, and it's his identity, his right? Like, you know, when the cop confronts him at the laundromat and sort of makes fun of his scarf and his silly glasses and his jacket. Downtown is interested how a 19-year-old Barnard honor student with fancy parents got a quarter of uncut coke on her when she's found murdered. I mean, this ain't the type of girl we find crews in Alphabet City looking to score, you know what I'm saying? Somebody sold her. Somebody upscale, somebody classy. You're classy, so I hear. And maybe somebody knows something we need to know. You understand? delivery boy. It's such a great scene because you're doing your laundry in a dingy rundown laundromat. Yeah. Yet he's wearing this scarf and his bullshit tinted glasses and his leather jacket. And the cop is just so dismissive of him in a way that's so true to this approach to, I think, nightlife in general and maybe yeah. 80s, early 90s nightlife. Like this is what, 92. Mm-hmm. So you know how they always say like, when you say the 70s or the 80s or the 90s, it doesn't really mean that. It's like the 80s weren't really over yet by 92. It still kind of looks and feels like the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, this Um, is sort of the twilight. It's the twilight of the 80s. This is the end of it. The party's over for everybody. The party's over. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities between this and Saturday Night Fever. There were, Uh, yeah. And it was sort of interesting that, you know, it's 15 years difference, but it does feel like One's the end of one decade, one's the end of a different decade, you know, and in in this, it's at a strange point. There are so many representations of New York during the battle days, that yeah. sort of taking a Pelham yeah. one, two, three, taxi driver, that era of yes. it as a hellscape. And then you have the sort of sex in the city idea yeah. of of New York as metropolis yeah. and cool. And this seems to be somewhere in between. This is a very the two. specific 
very finite window of time just between those two things. The the drug dealer he has a, he has a beeper, no yeah, cell phone, no cell phone. Uh, yep. Uses still uses the payphones, payphones. Um, yep. You know, people are taking. He here's another weird thing about this kind of drug dealer. He takes a town car everywhere. Yeah, well, it's like, classy. Yeah, I guess. But you know, here's another thing I liked about that. Speaking of the town car, a. I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but at the very end of the movie, after he witnesses the suicide slash murder of his ex-wife, quote unquote, because they weren't really married, he gets into the back of the town car and the driver is referring to him really formally, even though he's the only person we've ever seen driving John Latour around. And you you sort of get the impression early on in the movie that this guy, I I, I sort of thought until that scene that the limo driver was like an employee of Susan Sarandon's Mm -hmm. character. And he was the guy who always drove this guy and knew exactly what was going on. But he, he speaks so formally to Latour. Where would you like me to go, sir? What, you know, and Latour's like, wait right here for a minute. Here, sir. You want me to wait here, sir? It's like, they don't even know each other. And it's just a little thing, which I have to think, given the specificity of Schrader, like all of these little collective things add up to this kind of overwhelming sense of disconnection that exists throughout the entire movie pertaining to this character who, even though he's in and among people, he's totally and utterly alone. Yes. And it's, he's unable to make connections even with people that are trying to make connections with him. So the Susan Sarandon character and the other guy who's great, um, I can't remember his name. Uh, Um, Clemen or David Clennon. Um, they, they have a togetherness. Like, I don't feel that they're alone in this world, even though there's a loneliness kind of attached to both of them. They have each other and they're mm-hmm. going into the, the cosmetics, I almost said the narcotics business. They're going to the cosmetics business together and he's not a part of it. He hasn't yeah. been asked yet. And then when she does ask him, it's a little, she, she doesn't really want him to come along into the cosmetics business. Though it's, it's a question to me, like how much of this is nobody wants him or how much of this is he's putting out sort of a vibe that that pushes people away? He is an odd and real specific character besides the the specificity yeah. of this kind of drug dealing. Yeah. And, and just to backtrack a little bit, um, you know, he, not only do they sell these sort of white drugs to white people, he's not rich. You know, he no, actually- he has nothing. He's complaining about money. He's he like, nothing. I've got nothing. Exactly. Yeah. So he has to put on these airs yeah. so he can blend into this world enough to do his business. Right. But never enough to to actually make a make a change in his life. And in the same way, I think there's a similar w- dynamic between the way he deals with um, the two other people in the mm-hmm. drug dealing business with yeah. Anne and uh, I'm blank Robert Robert, Robert, Robert. Me, yeah. between Anne and Robert. Though they are really nice to him, yes, and uh, they do seem to be sincere. And he reacts oddly mm-hmm. in places like. All of that that struggle for connection, this isn't about, oh my gosh, he, the, the world is so mm-hmm. horrible and disconnected. Mm-hmm. This guy is a specific character yes. who, has, who has his own problems, yes. which are leading him to have trouble connecting with people, but at the same time, makes him able to move between those things. So that's one thing that I really appreciate about, about this movie, that it doesn't allow the the character any sort of like every man kind of out to make him no. more sympathetic no it boxes him in i mean he yeah. boxes himself in i i was struck watching it this time how little he shares with ann and robert about what's actually going on i mean these traumatic things are happening to him yeah his, his ex-wife's mother died who you who you feel there was a real closeness there at one point although ironically the closeness is represented as having existed both kind of only in latour's mind Mm -hmm. But then also kind of in reality, like there is something about 
when the sister says, when Jane Adams, who's amazing, um, when Jane Adams says, you know, she always loved you, John, like you feel that it's real. Absolutely. But at the same time, in the scenes with Dana Delaney, you also get the idea that this kind of was a destructive, mutually destructive relationship, which wasn't really grounded in anything real. Well, says her, you know, he still seems yeah. to feel it. But I mean, know. he's crazy. But and he's curled she, up with a boombox where he records her her name on a hotel answering oh, service. Come on, like listen. you haven't. <laughs> Marianne Jost. Marianne Jost. Marianne Jost. I mean, it's not presented <laughs> as the most like balanced relationship. It, let's say that's he true, takes it a little too seriously. She is hardly a. Um, a reliable narrator. She Interesting. commits suicide and or uh well she has a drug problem, murder. Chris. Well, absolutely. And I think the drug problem that he had might also have led or to has. His, had and or yeah. has, right? He might right. be still in recovery. Um he's got his problems, but sort of so is she is all that I'm saying that I that I don't think that he is delusional. Mm-hmm. She might be at times as well and might be more you know, they have that great scene in the hospital where he's mm-hmm. like, it wasn't all bad. And she's saying it was. Yeah. And, I, I, that and seems I'm not amazing. S- I don't want you to know about my life. Anything? You're married? You got kids? A dog? House plants? Nothing. <laughs> Details just open the door. Open the door to what? I mean, it's not like we're strangers, after all. We were married. We were not. It was a ceremony. It, he, he wasn't even a minister. He was, he was an astrologer. He was also a minister of the Church of Universal he Harmony. He was a Pisces. You're a Pisces. It was not legal. In the eyes of Jane Dixon, we're married. I was born on the cusp. We were happy. We were miserable. We were either scoring or coming down, mostly coming down. No, we had good times. Area. <laughs> Out on the street, dancing with friends. We were magical. You took off for three months without telling me and called once. That's how magical we were. I'm not saying that she is, and I really don't mean to, to say that she's terrible. I'm just saying that they're, well, he is, he is flawed, but he is not terrible either. Because again, Jane Adams's character seemed to yes. like him. Everybody seems to enjoy getting along with him. Um to a, to a point. To a degree. But, you know, that scene in the hospital, and I'll talk about that for a second, because A, it's got that amazing framing yeah. where, and the scene is there, he's finally persuaded her with great reluctance on her part to come down and just sit with him and have a conversation. They're having a conversation and Schrader frames it brilliantly with a pillar literally between them. And they're sitting in chairs with this barrier between the two yeah. of them. Schrader's light touch is always appreciated <laughs> in all the films. It's also like when they have the love scene and there's the the angel photo over the bed. Yeah. I don't know what that painting is. There's probably some significance. Maybe you know. That's more your- I, I think I it's know. also Paul Schrader, just his head's always in it's like always God in something. stuff. But that scene, okay, the dialogue is so good. And I actually rewound this movie in a couple of places. I'm using the term rewind for you millennials listening. That's what you used to do when you yeah. had a, a movie on VHS. I actually, I don't know what you call it on a- Stream. Is it rewinding? Is it going back? back. What do like they say? Back. Can you go back? You don't say, do you yeah, rewind? Yeah, I guess anymore? go back. Yeah. Okay. So I went back and this is one of the scenes because that scene, Latour is holding her hand. She's kind of melted a little bit. She's, 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 she's a little bit with him in this reminiscence. And he goes, we were in love. And she goes, yeah. Then he says, we were happy. She doesn't answer. 
And I, I actually, on all the scenes with the two of them, I was on her side. I was like, get away from this guy. You, you made the right choice. You, however tenuously, got to the other side. You have your life together. This guy is going nowhere. And he's going to drag you back in, which is exactly what happens if you let him into your life again. And she's right about that. And, and, and so I'm just curious, because it, it sounds like we maybe have two different kind of takes on this, which is interesting. I think when I was always rooting for her to stay the hell away from this guy. Yeah. That sounds like you weren't. <clears throat> I wasn't. I guess it's because we're seeing it from his yeah. point of view. And he seems to have it together too. Like I, I never bought that. Chrissy, he lives in an apartment with no furniture. So where, what Who part does he furniture? have it together? Tell me where you see him as together. That's what I'm curious about. Like he what, would, what's together in this guy's life? He keeps a journal. I think that's <laughs> that's very healthy. Okay. Yeah, that's which, very he throws healthy. Out which, the wind, which he throws out the window. Um, but okay, all right. Speaking of Paul Schrader's light touch, the very idea that they have a garbage <laughs> strike going on the whole time. Oh, it's and so good. Trash just it's piling so up. Good. And all I love you, that. See, you see people like digging yes. through the trash. Yeah. The fact that to throw things away, you just have to throw it out the window and it's in the yeah. pile of garbage with everything else. When she falls, yeah, when, how about when she she, when she falls or is pushed, she's just another piece of garbage yeah. on the street. I mean, he has a, the heaviest of touches, but it, it, it somehow works for me until the end of the movie. Um, yeah. But uh, but it but it works. A couple of other things. If I can go just to yeah. this question of why I think I'm I'm a little bit more yeah, sympathetic okay, sure, to him. Yes. Mostly because you're seeing it from his point of view. No, he, he obviously has his problems, but he- But that's like saying you're seeing struggling. Taxi Driver from Travis Bickle's point of view and you're sympathetic to his his experience. You are sympathetic well, he's a homicidal maniac. Well, when he, you know, when he <laughs> does bad things, you're like, well, gosh, you shouldn't have done that. I was on your side. Now, now okay, my feelings are more complicated. Forgiving. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so you're, you're with him. He's, you're with John Latour then. You're all, you're team Latour. I, I, you, you, absolutely. You root for him to succeed. I want him to succeed. Oh my gosh. And also anybody who so desperately goes to a psychic and like that also was, was a scene. great. I look at you and I give you my impressions. I... Feel your vibrations. I hate that word. Sounds so phony, doesn't it? But I can't think of anything better. You're anxious. More than usual. Your livelihood is endangered. You're worried about the future. You don't have much money saved. I see a woman who has betrayed you. My mother? Will. She was great. That's Paul Schrader's wife. I know. Yeah. Mary Beth Hurt. Mary Beth Hurt. She was so good in two throwaway scenes for almost anybody else. She really imbued them with something really, really deep and cool, I thought. But he is so- He's I, desperate. You see him desperate and struggling the whole time. And I want somebody who's desperate and struggling to succeed over their own demons I, I or totally agree. And, However, I want someone who's desperate and struggling to take active steps- to succeed over their demons. And he's not doing that. Well, that, he's, that's, that, he's not using, but he's drinking. And I guess, you know, uh, so he, that, that's which not, he admits he's, he's honest about. Well, I, I don't know if that's- he's, uh, he's honest in a dishonest moment. She says, he says to her, I'm clean. She goes, let me see your eyes. So she looks at eyes. She goes, something like eyes can be deceiving or something. And she, and then his beeper goes off and she's like, oh, and he's like, oh, okay. I'm dealing a little. I'm dealing, so but, I'm not, he's not but I'm not honest. using. He's, he's high. He, he's, he's actually lying until he's called out and he right, only which, ever uh, tells the truth when he has to. Right. Well, so, Hey, who, who doesn't, I, right. I mean, <laughs> 
full cast and crew is brought to you by the award-winning comedy series Philly Court. It's like a fake Judge Judy, but if way more of the cases involved Percocet and illegal fireworks. Philly Court Season 2, premiering now on Facebook. Just like and follow Chuckler Comedy on Facebook for the latest episodes. Philly Court did not actually win any awards, my dude, but the guys in Vinny's called it awesome, except for Brian Welsh, who's a fucking dumbass anyways, and I'm going to beat his ass, but steal him with Twisted Tees. All that I'm saying is I'm simply, because we're seeing it from his point of view and we do see him make yeah, those mistakes, yeah. we do. I, I'm under no impression that he's an angel or anything so like that. When he's curled but, up in his bed with the boombox playing her, her yeah. saying her name over and over again, are you moved by that or are you horrified by that? I guess sort of moved. Like I feel bad for the guy. <laughs> You wow. know, because we, you know, we had yeah. spoken before. Here's somebody who's desperate for a connection. Yes. And, I, you know, I'm ashamed to say that I simply have known enough of these people in my yes. life. When yeah. they're desperate for a connection, the more desperate you get, the more difficult it becomes to yes. make that connection because yes. every opportunity feels almost like it's your last one. Sure. And so, therefore, in order to try to make it, you make that connection in a way that's sort of so harsh and so strange yeah. Yeah. that it's more off putting than anything else, putting you further yes. down where you were. So, that's the thing that I saw I happening with him. Yeah. And with Dana Delaney's character, first of all, and she was fantastic. I've never seen great. China Beach or anything like that. Yeah. I knew her name. I've only heard her in great like, she played in Lois Lane in a lot yeah. of Superman superhero cartoons. TV cartoons, yeah. She does the voice of Lois. Um, so She's I can totally see that, yes, oh my God, you know, her distrust is not unwarranted. Yes. But I still feel bad because, again, we're seeing it from his point of view. So I'm rooting for him mm. and wanting him and also understanding why he is doing things that have the opposite effect of yes. what he wants. Well, so that's all that I mean. And okay, to that also point, that she has her own set of problems. Yeah. Her sister even admits like she's been on drugs. She was lying too. She this it's not like her mother dies so therefore she yes. broke her string but of uh, string I take of Jane Adams in that scene is a little bit enabling of John Latour. She's a little bit kind of like Obviously, whatever happened in this, these two sisters' family, they, they maybe have some poor choices that were made. I'm not sure in terms of their choice of, of, of men, given what Dana Delaney and- Listen, it's 92. You know, it's 92. You know, you it's a different era. <laughs> However, I'm reminded of my good friend, Chris Campion, had a, had a statement that re- John Latour reminded me, Chris used to always say, I always wanted to be judged on my intentions, not my actions. Yeah. So wow. John, La- good... John Latour in this movie is someone who always wants to be judged on his intentions, which of course he never overtly states because he can't, he can't communicate in a fundamental way. I mean, when he shows up at the mother's funeral, like the funeral parlor, like he shouldn't go there. And I thought the scene with Jane Adams was so, so well done where she's like, John, you shouldn't have come. And the way she is with him and that pause there's an incredible pause in the scene. Um, I'm trying to see if I made a note about it because I wanted to to really kind of hammer it here. It's like when when she is out on the street in front of the funeral home with him after Dana Delaney has freaked out and like, get out yeah. of my life, get out, you know? Um, when he says to her, I saw your mother, and she's surprised because remember he came into the hospital room and Jane Adams was sleeping in the chair. So she has no idea mm-hmm. that he came in. There's just such a weird expression on her face, which at first I thought was, it strikes her as really creepy that he came into the room and saw their mother without waking her. Of course, we know that that's when Dana Delaney saw him and sees him reaching for the toe of the, the mother in the hospital bed and she's moved and she lets him back in and they go and they sleep together. She wakes up and she's like, that was, I'm glad it happened, but uh, don't call me, yeah. don't see me. She cuts it off, right? Jane Adams' face is kind of amazing in the scene where she's confronting him and saying, you were? And he's like, yeah, you were asleep. 
she looked freaked out and she gets in as quickly as possible and gets away from him. And I wasn't sure if she's putting together that that's why Dana Delaney wasn't present at the moment the mother um, passed away mm-hmm. or whether she's just, it's an additional layer of John Latour creeping people out because of his intentions, but he's completely, he's completely blundering into one bad thing after another that he has no business being a part of. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't know what, what Jane Adams was meant to be I guess I don't, representing. I, I don't know why that struck you in that moment. I just thought it was interesting. At the time, um, it just seemed like more that she was sort of freaked out or sort of as with, like you said, if she enables her sister and enables John, I would think when you're enabling somebody like that, you have to edit your own memory in the same way that um, mm-hmm. that uh, Dana Delaney's character yeah. accuses John of. Right. And I think Jane probably did, winks at certain things, pretends she doesn't know certain mm-hmm. things. And then when she's confronted with something that happened without her knowing, it might have shown to her like, oh, I've been kind of mm-hmm. lying to myself about who yeah. you are and maybe about who my sister is. Yeah. It hadn't struck me that that moment yes. that she missed it because they were having having sex. Maybe, uh, yeah. And that she was that, waking that's up That's how I that. felt. I felt it was it – was, it was the younger sister who probably always had a crush on her older sister's boyfriend slash husband. Yeah. And thinking he was cool. And then realizing in this moment, he not only is he sort of not cool, but because it comes on the heels of her seeing him and sort of being so startled and sort of so like, John, you shouldn't have come. Like she, the way she says the line to me, he obviously shouldn't have just shown up at the funeral home. Yeah. Like, based on how it was ended between him and Dana Delaney, he knows he's not, he should know he's not welcome there. Mm-hmm. This this is why I think I don't right, I don't know it's Dana Delaney's mother, yeah, not his. I, I don't you know, know Schrader's history with this stuff. I don't know enough about him to know. But the movie to me is really really smart about addiction, mm-hmm. and it's really really smart about drug culture, and it's really really smart about the ways that people who are addicts and or recovered people manage and process their emotions. It, it's really smart in a way that I think he must ha- either have some personal experience with mm-hmm. it or in his research for this, which I read a little bit about how he would send, I think he sent Defoe out on some drug deals with a, a with a drug dealer who, who handled a similar clientele. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he got all those details so right. And the yeah. emotional journey is all right. Again, up until the end, I, I just, it, it's like the movie falls off a cliff in the last 10 minutes. Everything up till him and Sarandon knocking on Tisa's hotel door. After that, it, it just gets so silly to me. The shootout where, where like, you know, now we're all shooting each other. And then the prison scene is well done. Like it's acted really well between the two of them. It's just so weird. Like his, the, the final moment of connection that he's been waiting for the whole movie is when he's incarcerated on like a triple homicide. And that, then he can connect to her. Then he's like, he's unburnt. He's so loose. He's so yeah. free in a way we haven't seen him. He looks at, he's at ease. He's, he's comfortable in jail. Now there's a part of that that's really true, I think, to addiction or recovery in a way. And I think that the character is being really truthful to where the character is coming from in that. Like he's relieved. I think he even says it was a relief actually mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because he's in a place now where he where he's in prison. That's where he wants to be. It's the same thing. He was in prison in his apartment. He was just free to come and go from the prison. Mm-hmm. Now he's in the prison and, and it's even more confined and the rules are even more clear cut. And he actually think he likes it. 100%. You know, and that, this is not a unique uh, 
<laughs> this is not a unique. That was me kicking the table yeah. and frustrated. Not for emphasis. Not for emphasis. For us, yeah. Uh, but this is, it's not a unique ending. Like um, I yeah. was reading that particularly he yes. was one of uh, Schrader's favorite movies, Brisson's Pickpocket. Pickpocket, yeah. Which I haven't also seen ends. Because uh, it ends with the guy in prison? Guy in prison. Right. Similar, similar sort and of scene. And happy to be there? I'd have to see yeah. it to know what the, yeah. Pretty much. You know, okay. I, I don't remember well enough the, the amount of detail, whether there's the um, hope of a future that this mm-hmm. kind of lays out. Yeah. Certainly, uh, certainly he is there and he feels once he has had this, uh, uh, this um, identifying characteristic of his mm-hmm. taken away, he can no longer be a pickpocket once he's there. Right, right. So this thing yeah. that had defined him, but also hemmed him in and was its own prison. Yeah. Once it was taken away, his- He's uh, free to be himself. He's free to, yeah. right, to sort of grow, to you okay. know, grow again. Yeah. And I get the impression and that's that- that's the same, that's, that's, the, that's the vibe we're getting here. And I think that's also, if you've ever seen American Gigolo, that's, that's yeah. very much the same thing at exactly. the end of American Gigolo. He's incarcerated- and but free, he's out of the life. One of the things that I disliked though about the scene, I mean, it's well, like you yeah. said, well written, well acting stuff. There is something, and maybe this is just 20 some odd years mm-hmm. later looking at the gender dynamics. The idea that he and Susan Sarandon would have some kind of romantic connection, connection <laughs> seemed really shoehorned in. Yeah, like, I'm glad I mean, that they made a connection. There, well, the, I just wish it, it was, was sort of platonic, pat. it, it seems a little strange. too pat. Yeah. And well, because she has a certain kind of growth and the fact that they talk about yeah. Robert, 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 Robert thought he could take the business over and he, then he returns to the drug dealing, returns and, yeah. to drug dealing. Like yeah. the fact that they, the, here's another theme in the movie that I liked so much. And that was also, I think, similar to Saturday Night Fever in the sense of like getting old and moving mm-hmm. older and moving from one stage of life to another and to hear them talk about like, ah, oh, 10, 15 years yeah. ago when we were yeah. like, all doing drugs and having yeah, the best time, yeah, like this yeah. sort of nostalgic element, but then to find themselves that they're sort of still in this life, kind of wanting to get out and sort yeah. of realizing they've stayed a little bit too long. I really, I thought this, I mean, that's not like a totally new theme, theme, but to put it in this context yeah. and the way that they dealt with it was, and having it so just sort of mm-hmm. part of their their life and such a, yeah. such a constant thing, um, I, I really liked it. I found it- uh, Totally agree. Very moving. I, the scene where he's leafing through the photo album and it's kind of underscoring. And again, this is what I think is so brilliant about that thing that you're just talking about is he's looking through this photo album mournfully as if this is the representative photographic evidence of the closeness and the and the great time that was had not only by, by him and Dana Delaney, but by all of them. Yeah. But the photos are just people at parties drunk and doing drugs. It's not a collection of heartwarming photos of togetherness. It's just party photos. But he's leafing through it as if it's the most, hard, it's like a photo of his like newborn child. Well, do you want better? Specifically, the one he lands on to mourn her and to think about her is a picture of just her on the beach. Oh, I And he has a series that. of like three I pictures. I didn't notice that. But he's not he's in He's not it. in it. <laughs> it's a picture of her. So here is yeah, his. Well, yeah, uh, well, that's why I'm saying to me, the relationship is not real. It's in his mind. It's played that way. It like both was and wasn't real, which again, I think is true to the, to the, to the subject matter. And I think whatever disagreement we have about which of the two is more or less unreliable. It's just that I think they, they sort of both are, and who knows, maybe that's also where they found their Well, we would need to get your girlfriend here to find out really where your allegiance with Jean Latour sort of begins and ends. I mean, if you get a little stalkerish, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's just to, well, to sort of be reflexively now, so, on uh, his uh, side yeah. when you're watching a Paul Schrader movie and you're thinking like, I really am rooting for this guy. Oh, I, you know, I hope I he makes it out every, of here. I, you root I, for, I everybody. for everybody. It's your heart. Are you That's kidding? The heart Chris <laughs> I'm hoping they'll turn it around. Come on, Jaws. Uh, you're better than this. He snitches out. 
you know, his supposed friends on the on a phone call. I on mean, a phone call. This Did guy's I, not a very like. First of all, his name also isn't John Latour. No, his name is not John Latour. The fact Latour. that we have no idea what his actual <laughs> name is, we don't know what his. He has a sister brought up like in the eleventh hour. Like the name is so good though. Like oh, John Latour. It's it's just again another layer of the bullshit. The the supposed class and elegance of what they're doing. It's just it's so good. And if he wasn't so desperate to try to create a real life, that might just seem cynical. Mm -hmm. This now, it does seem tragic because here you have this person who wants to feel, trying to feel, wants to connect, needs to connect, surrounded by so much bullshit and and can't think of anything to do besides more bullshit. You know, another another thing on the Defoe part, I don't know if you watched this. I watched an interview that he did with Charlie Rose right before the movie came out. Uh Um, And it's worth looking at. I, we may have mentioned this before just in our interpersonal conversations, but, you know, I always think that actors broadly can be classed into two groups. One group are capable and really good at discussing what they're doing as actors, and the other group are almost unable to speak at all to their process or what they're doing. Like a De Niro, for yeah. example, isn't a guy who's going to go on and on about you know, what he was thinking or approaching in a given scene. And kind of surprising to me, because I don't, you know, I mean, of course, we all have watched Willem Dafoe for 30 years, do everything. Um, But he's surprisingly inarticulate about what he was thinking and what his process was. It's kind of interesting to watch. He's so good. He's just one of those guys, his look, his, his visage, when you put that face on screen, it's so, I just, you, you think of all his movie roles. Yeah. I think of him in all these other movies where his complexity, he's so compelling and complex, even if he's not doing anything. Mm-hmm. And he's so good at dialogue and this movie's dialogue is so good and tight. And like, there's really not a wasted thing again until the end when it gets a little silly, Yeah, but really up until then, man, it's, it's just... It's so well done, and he's so interesting to watch, um, yeah. and so perfectly cast. I can't imagine. I don't know if anyone else was ever considered to be in this movie other than him, but I can't imagine anyone else doing that yeah. part. Um, and Sarandon was so good too. She doesn't get a lot of credit for this role that I hear about, but man, I, I can't think of anything where she's really as good as she is here. Um, again, up until the end, but she's so good and specific in the scene between the two of them in the restaurant. So what's the plan? The plan. For the future. My future? Yeah, was that too conceptual Man. for you? <laughs> we had this conversation two years ago. We're going to have it no. again in no, two years. No, this time it is for real. Well, I'm thinking about taking some music courses. Sound editing, mixing. Didn't you already do that? No, that was acting. No, that was modeling. Guess <laughs> 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 I should try these berries. They're flown in from someplace. I mean, everything's flown in from someplace. <laughs> is there something you want to say? What's up? I guess I'm a little worried. I mean, everybody thinks I'm so tough. And you gotta be tough. I mean, especially in this business. It's one thing to look tough. It's another thing to... a big producer nominated for an Academy Award Best Picture I used to know every girl he fucked who, how I mean if he couldn't take a shit I mean we were like this 
his wife told him to get straight or else she'd cut him off old money and i remember the last thing he said to me we'll keep in touch right that's five years ago it's so sad and yeah. and fraught and yet taking place in this temple of we're all rich and successful and everything is good but she gets snubbed by the former client yeah. um, who doesn't, you know, she's just a drug dealer to him. Yeah. Uh, and to herself, too, which is, I think, the the thing I feel is like they're so desperate to pretend they're not what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and their only choice has been to buy into that idea of themselves, I guess, for so long that, you know, he's supposed to be 38 in the movie, right? That's right, a long 40. time to be in, in, the, in, the, in the life, right? Yeah. You know, I moved to New York in 1995. I lived in the East Village. My first apartment cost $380 a month. I went 12th Street and Avenue A. You know, and, and my first job paid $250 a week as a production assistant. So you could live in the East Village yeah. as late as 1995 and get started in a career in the entertainment business. And you could do that. Obviously, you can't do that now. There, yeah. There's no such thing unless you are so far away in an outer borough and living probably still with seven or 10 roommates in some kind of a in a house situation where you can afford that, right? It's another thing that I think lends the movie some retroactive kind of ennui or angst, if you will, in the sense that you could still live that way when this movie was taking yeah. place. Mm-hmm. You know, like Latour could try a music career or an acting career or any of the careers that he talks about wanting oh, to gosh, try and discarding. Like you, you could try and do it and, and make a living because it wasn't quite so expensive. At the time the movie is set, it was possible to live in Soho, the East Village, the West Village, and Hell's Kitchen. Hell's where, Kitchen. Uh, Sam Rockwell, where jealous, where jealous was. lives, and and you could you could eke out an existence. Yeah, that's that's part I think of what makes Latour even more desperate and sad. Really, is um, he's like, oh, I think I'm taking some production music classes. She goes, Didn't you do that? He's like, No, no. She's like, Oh, was that acting, or painting, and or modeling, modeling? You know. The sad lunch. Sad lunch. Yeah. Where they didn't eat their fruit. Yeah. Was that the only thing they were having or was that the- Presumably that, that was, was the dessert. dessert. Okay. Yeah. Maybe that's like but the famous was, dessert at whatever that restaurant was. Uh, I think it was like La Cote Basque. La Cote Basque. Anyway, we can jump into the full casting. I was about to say, let's- So directed by Paul Schrader, of course. I mean, you, I've, I've seen a lot of Paul Schrader movies. I don't think I've seen any in a while. Um as you mentioned, people are talking a lot about First Reformed. Um, I think the last one I saw would have been Bringing Out the Dead. Which I, I, I think is a very underrated. Yeah, I think um, I've seen more of his that he has written yeah. than, than he's actually directed. Um, I wonder if I watched Bringing Out the Dead again, is Nick Cage sort of another man in a room character who hates his job and is on this same kind of Paul Schrader-esque journey? When I saw Bringing Out the Dead, I saw it in the theaters in 99, and it— um, I found it incredibly moving, partially yeah. because Nicolas Cage also is, is he and Willem Dafoe both have a they yeah. both have and I think partially it's because they're unconventional looking yes. leading men. Yep. And they have a character actor sensibility. So there's so much going on before you even get to this is the protagonist yeah. of the story doing a recognizable thing. Yeah. They bring all of that energy with them. With bringing out the dead, it's um because he's an ambulance yeah. driver. And wanting to help people like that yeah. metaphor is sort of so much yes. more open. It's it's yeah. like a sweeter movie in that it's not sweet, but yeah. but it's sweeter in that sense because that the, the desire that that he has, yeah. and he also has you know 
problems and the sort yeah. of ghosts of this thing and this thing that defines him that he hates and loves at the same time. But it was great. Um, I want to give a shout out to one of my favorite Paul Schrader movies, Blue Collar, 1978, Obscure. Have you seen it? It's, I haven't seen it. It's Richard Pryor, Harvey Keitel, and Yafet Kodo. It's it's a great movie. And Richard Pryor is probably different in this than in any other Richard Pryor movie you're going to see. Mm-hmm. So I, I recommend that movie. Because I can't think of any other... Uh, non-comedic roles that Richard Pryor I mean, he's has funny ever done. In it, but it's um right but it's but, but it's, it's a serious not a movie. It's not it's a, a serious comedy. movie like no, except for I guess Jojo Dancer, his own life his story. His own life story, yes. Uh, uh so Schrader, obviously Defoe, Sarandon, we've spoken about Dana Delaney, David Clennant. I mean David Clennant is one of those guys like I think this is gonna be a recurring thing for me because I'm is we do these that's an actor to me. Yeah. Uh, you, you look at his page, he's one of those guys who has credits going back to like what feels like the 60s. Yep. Well, 1969 to today. Yeah. That's an actor, man. TV, movies, everything. Yeah, and some great ones. He was in The Thing. And he was in The Thing. He was in Being There. So- but not a leading man. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that, is it, maybe it's better to be the David Clennon than to be the, like the Tom Cruise? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean- I mean, Tom Cruise is, you know, he stretched that out, but- The 1% of the 1%. But I mean- I don't know. There's so many guys like Victor Garber uh, is great in this too. You might also think of Willem Dafoe also as like, yeah. a, um, yeah. as more of a character actor who has done some lead performances. But you think of most of his performances are character sort yeah. of supporting things. But this David Clenning guy, you're absolutely <laughs> right. Like you have so, so little good. from the character, but he just makes it feel so lived in and so uh, the earring, real. the belt, the yeah. clothes. Like you feel like you're in good hands with him. And that's something you can't really- like the script is whatever it is, his lines or whatever they yeah. are, his wardrobe. I don't know, you know, but his avuncular presence, he just has that. I thought Victor Garber was so good. I've never it, seen Victor Garber without <laughs> white hair. I mean, seeing, it, seeing it, him before his, he's, he's it's such, great. this to me is such a great character of oh God. It just reminds me of my misspent youth mm-hmm. is the, 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 effortlessly cruel, wealthy person who can indulge his own whims, perversions, addictions at no cost to himself. You meet the character Tease. He's in a hospital because some girl he picked up in a bar he doesn't even know uh, had an overdose and he called his drug dealer to bring him a Valium. He, he, there's like a, not a conflict, but the two of them, he's like, hey, is she okay? He's like, who? You got some Valiums? Yeah. And loot? Uh, just a Valium. A ten. What is it? You won't believe it. What a nightmare. I brought in this chick. She OD'd, man. I didn't even know her. I didn't have to bring her in. The, the cops are coming back to talk to me. I'm hyper. I gotta calm down. This would never happen in Zurich. Yeah. Make it two. Thanks. She okay? Who? The girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The girl with the oh, overdose. It was nothing. In fact, she called me and she wants to go out again. I don't yeah. know what they see in me. <laughs> it's so funny. Jamie Adams, amazing. Um, now, one of my favorite full cast and crew thing. Paul Jabara, who plays 
the the guy who is addicted to drugs, uh, Eddie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This also seems to be very conscious that even with the selling of white drugs to white people, it's yeah. not just a party drug. The character of Eddie is sort of yeah. a reminder of like, actually, Holy it's kind of good. Yeah. You, you can tell yourself whatever lies <laughs> yeah, you want. But this guy is dying in front yeah. of you. Um, so that guy, Paul Jabara, uh, is a disco legend. I don't know if you knew this. No. He wrote Last Dance. Wow. <laughs> um, and he actually is more of a musician than he is really an actor, although he had some sort of seminal acting roles here and there. Um, but yeah, he he's a he's a guy who recorded for Casablanca Records. Um, so he's got a lot of great cheesy kind of disco tunes. And man, he's so good as Eddie. I mean, he's, the, yes, to your point, he's the person in the movie who strips away the veneer of the teas and the nightclubs and all the yeah. bullshit and just shows you what you're really doing here. Hey, he um, also, uh, he apparently is the composer of It's Raining Men. Oh, is he really? I didn't know that. This was his last, his last Yeah, he died, he died, I think, two years oh, after this, right? I'm sorry, yeah. um, I forgot Sam Rockwell was in this movie until he, until he showed up because it's so jarring to me. I guess, I, I guess what it is, Chris, is that I'm old. That 1992 no, feels like a it. long time away, and it feels like how could Sam Rockwell even be alive in 1992 and then winning like an Academy Award in 2018? Yeah. Um, come he to find out, he'd actually had been in a bunch of movies before this. And so he I looks am old. Exactly the same. He looks well, exactly no, the same. I'm sure you look exactly no, I'm the same as you did in 1992. No, I own it. I'm old. Um, Two, which, has its, which has yeah. its positives, it I'm sure. Experience. We'll with enumerate them. them at some other some yeah, other but podcast. We can remember but, them. But um, he was he was great. He Sam Rockwell's another one. Again, maybe it's Schrader's eye or something like that. But he's yeah. both with him as as with Clennon, Clement, Clennon, David Clennon. Clennon. That uh, and I think all of the actors that he cast in this, and again, whether it's he has a good eye for it, likes that style, or if it's something about his direction, there there was nothing showy or fussy. Can I just or, say, I'm not a Sam Rockwell fan. There's okay. something there's something about him as an actor that I can never get to. Um, I find him really remote all the time in what he's doing. And I don't find him accessible in a way that I, I like, I, I like to feel like I can connect to the character in a certain way. And there's just something about him. I don't know what it is. I just, mm -hmm. he's just never, he's never someone who's, I, I can appreciate that he's, that he's being good. Yeah. Like I'm often watching him in movies and going, wow, he's really good. Yeah. He's really good in this movie, but I don't know. You know, it's funny you should say that just because uh, I don't have a strong feeling about Sam Rockwell one way or the other. And I guess it's, it also depends on what you're sort of looking for in a thing mm -hmm. because uh, th this is more of a conflict I have, or not even a conflict, but uh, sometimes when with my own writing and, mm -hmm. and I have to admit that I am usually less interested when watching something or listening to something in relating directly to the person mm -hmm. as being sort of interested in in watching them and understanding them not mm -hmm. not from afar not that i want to be right. disconnected but there is something about like i appreciate so much some somebody that feels like they're sort of living in it that i don't feel like i need to connect to them as much as like understand or feel like i've been given an honest portrayal that i sure. can glean something from totally yeah well i think it's interesting because i think you as an actor have this quality that i'm talking about liking like when you're in something you're there like there's a heart to it that i can connect to yeah um I, I think you're right. I think with with him, I have this also with um, Jessica Chastain. Mm -hmm. Like I see her in movies that I'm supposed to like or that I'm supposed to think she's amazing in this, and maybe she is. 
but I just can't plug into it. I can't, there's some, yeah. there's some, there's a, I guess it's like, there's a remoteness and a coldness that may, may well be indicative of, um, uh, you know, like having appropriate boundaries or, or being a, a well-adjusted person. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, like, it could be that you're just like emotionally haywire. And so when I see you in something, you're like, I it's, like that. It's, it's all there. And I'm like, yeah, give me some truth. Uh, I don't know. But um, yeah, I don't know. But he's good in this. He's really good in this. Yeah. I love the jacket is amazing. Um, and the other one is the, probably the greatest credit we'll ever have. Theological Cokehead is a pretty good acting That's credit so to fantastic. have. Where was I? All right. So if there is no God, then how can we conceive of it? You know, I mean, the idea of God presupposes the existence of God. You know, that's the ontological argument. That's Anselm. It's that's twelve hundred or fourteen hundred. I'm not sure. I gotta get a oh, don't leave. Don't it's a tour. Stay, stay. Listen, this is a good part. So, if the idea of God is implanted by God, the senses divinitatis, the sense of the divine. You know, then what is the role of human thought? David Spade, 92. I don't know what years was David Spade on Saturday Night Live. It was later, I think. It was like 95. Like, but it I don't... couldn't have been that much later because I see on his IMDb page, Tommy Boy. Yeah, it was 95. It was right? 95. Well, Tommy Boy was, I think, at the height of his, let me see, David Spade, SNL. All that I mean is like, I think he had to have been on SNL a season or two You think he was on SNL before... already when we saw this? Like when this movie came out, you think he was already... Only judging by, I'm sure they didn't give him Tommy Boy. Cast member, 1990 1990 to 1996. So he'd been on for two years. That's crazy to me because this also seems like such a, again, not knowing too much about David Spade, when somebody who's a comic star like that and who could probably walk through and get as many uh, Joe Dirts as he wants to, (laughs) he's like, you know, this summer I think I'd like to work with this auteur. Yes. Uh, Yeah. He's never done something like that again. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by Behemoth from Monkey Brain Comics. Behemoth is the dirty dozen meets the fly with little Spider-Man thrown in. Kids are turning into monsters and the government steps in to keep things quiet. Some are never heard from again, but others are forced on suicide missions on behalf of a world that hates them as part of Project Behemoth. Find it on monkeybraincomics.com or Comixology today. Uh, don't you get the sense sometimes with Paul Schrader movies, and we could talk about the music and, as a jump off from this, sometimes it feels like somebody he met at a party ends up having like a really important thing to do with the movie. Um, w- when I first started watching the opening credits, I'm like, what is this music? It's so yeah. overwrought and dated and crazy. Then, of course, I remember that it's from the guy who was in The Call. Right. right? Oh, I'd been and The Walls yes. came down, you know, great band, great song. And this was like his solo effort. Mm-hmm. And I think he's a much beloved guy in the music business. He died very young. Yep. Um, I think he died when he was 60. Yes. So when I was reading about it, I read that Schrader originally wanted to use Dylan's Empire Burlesque, which is as a Dylanologist, is, is probably the worst Bob Dylan album of all time. And that's saying something. <laughs> and actually, so last night I went back and I was like, well, let me just listen to the, yeah. let me just give like 20 seconds to each of these Empire Burlesque songs. Because my first thought was like, oh my God, that would have been amazing. Because I'm thinking more of like the Lenoir, Dylan albums that would have maybe been moving and kind of had that same ethereal, lost New York soul sense. No. I mean, once I listened to the Dylan songs, I was thankful that <laughs> Michael Bean did the music for Light Sleeper. Feel the steam down trembling in the earth we 
as soon as like the first shot yeah. came on and that music came in, it felt, you know, we were talking last week and you mentioned uh, I'm All Right and Kenny Loggins yes. at the end of, yes. uh, of Caddyshack. Yeah. There was something about this. That I was like, should I know who this person, like this music is displayed yeah, it, so prominently. It's so confident that you're like, I must, no one could sing this like this and not deal. be known to yeah. me. But to his credit, I mean, man, he's laying, talk about, talk about laying it all out there and being emotionally available. I kind of want to give this guy a hug and say, Michael, let's, let's go down to six or seven here. You're on about 3,700 on the emoting scale. Yes, it feels like the world's on fire. I, I don't think Paul Schrader, Paul Schrader's got like, he recognizes zero, zero through three, <laughs> and then, and then 99, over, through, yes. 99 and above. He he doesn't have wow. any of those middle tones. But the music does work. Like it, it, it is evocative of the time. Also, his uh, his scarf and his members only yes. suede jacket. That yeah. he, all of those things at the time probably didn't look. And probably in ten years, they'll age. You know, there's sort of age again into a way yeah. that it feels yeah. that it doesn't, but right now it does seem a little cheesy. So too, those very present mm-hmm. vocals and the very fact that you have one writer of the of the songs doing multiple like rock songs in the soundtrack. Yeah. Usually there's like one or you have a few different artists, but the yeah. very fact that, that, that the composer, again, not composing a score, yeah. but composing songs like that, yeah. making that a sort of equal collaborator always seems to me- Risky? Risky, yeah. I think <laughs> because they become very. Yeah, you're least, putting a lot of eggs in that basket. If it's a soundtrack, it's like I don't really like that song, but but oh, this this other song, I agree. like I like. Yeah. But with with this, it's like ugh, if you don't plug into Michael Bean from the beginning. Yeah. Well, for me, you know what the movie I always reference is um, Chariots of Fire, uh-huh. which is a great great movie which for me is ruined by the completely dated '80s soundtrack of Vangelis that plays over it. And there's some Vangelis freaks out there I know who are going to have a problem right. with that. But that iconic Good, theme, we need more it's, an, it's an iconic theme, right? Yeah. You know? um, but yeah, the music, it's funny. You're watching that first scene and it's just like a long shot over a puddled New York cobblestone street with garbage piled on either side. And the song is so <laughs> over the top. And it's like the sound of a guy just ripping his heart out, which is so <laughs> ironic because then we meet John Latour, who his his heart is not really accessible to him. Yes. Um, until the very last shot of the movie. The movie does have that level of emotion going on, but not demonstrably from any of the main characters, which is, I think, kind of fascinating, right? Like the vibe of the movie is sad and heavy, mm-hmm. right? And- It's not sad and heavy in the way that Saturday Night Fever is. That movie is sad and heavy in places because of things that are happening on the screen. This movie is freighted all over the place with this sad, heavy, the party is over. We've stayed too long at the party. The garbage people are on strike. The the people are on strike. (laughs) Like everything about it has that tatty, I'm in a nightclub and the lights just came on and it's not glamorous anymore feel, Mm -hmm. but not overtly, which I think is great about it. And that in that way, the music, which can seem kind of jarring to contemporary ears, does fit. And I, I think actually the atmospheric music that he composed fits much better than those two epic themes where he's shouting and emoting in the, yeah. in the lyrics. Yeah. Another shout out I wanted to give in these full cast and crew credits, the cinematographer is kind of a fascinating guy. And I would encourage people to look 
at Ed Lockman's career on his IMDb page. This is a guy who, as a cinematographer, shot everything from The Lords of Flatbush to Desperately Seeking Susan to... I mean, it's still Madonna working. documentaries. Carol. Less than zero. My New Gun, which is a great movie. If you've ever seen that, My no. New Gun, I, I recommend Carmen that. Carmen Electra's aerobic striptease. <laughs> That's the one That's I saw. That's that guy. That okay. guy, you I, know. Now, now I know. I think he won an award for that. Uh, up to recently, Carol, mm-hmm. uh, Wiener Dog, Wonderstruck. I mean- it is a really impressive. Still, still working. Uh, and I read, it was interesting how this movie, Schrader, you know, has given some interviews recently talking about being kind of just like priced out of the fo- the film market nowadays. And the way that this ended up being produced bizarrely by Mario Kassar and I think Carolco, right? Carolco. Uh, Carolco? I think it's- Car- Is it Carolco? I, mean, I, I think it's Carolco. Is it Notoriously- uh, Yeah. I would, did a little bit of reading about the the history of Carolco, which came from nowhere, produced huge mm-hmm. blockbusters, and then within ten years was bankrupt. Yeah, uh, well, the highs and lows. That's the eighties, Chris. I mean, you know, yeah. First Blood, Rambo, Total Recall, Terminator Two, and then L.A. Story, Jacob Island, Cutthroat Island. Cutthroat Island is like a movie that you think, oh, that would be fun to watch, but really not. That's, that's say, really several hours of my life I'm not going to it's get It's actually back. a real small list of that kind of like so bad. <laughs> that's just not even worth thing. it. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. It's not even worth it. Um, Karolko. Karolko. Like, why do I find that hard to say? I don't know. Why do you, you, think, it's, why do you think it's Karolko? Just and not, I think I've heard other people say it. Really? I, know, I think there was also a, a documentary. Of, no, maybe. No, that no, was. No, um, canon. No, that was canon films. That had a. That's, Mar- that's Golan Globus. Right. You're right. You know what? I don't, I don't know why Carolco. I think it's Carolco, except because it, I don't know, it sounds like a video game. No, it just sounds like Mario Casar's wife was named Carol. And so they named it Carolco. Though that is not why they named it. How do you know? It? Because on Wikipedia, Martin Casar said like, yeah, you know, we just sort of bought the name. Oh. It doesn't really mean anything. Oh, it doesn't mean anything? Yeah. It was bought in a company that was going out of business. Oh. So they bought the name. Still working apparently. Who? Uh, Mario Casar. Mar- Mario Casar. Oh wait, no, sorry. Not still working. Well, it doesn't say that he's dead. Let's see, there's, there's a section on Wikipedia, Carolco or Carolco relaunch. Carolco, Carolco. Announced that Kassar had returned as chairman of the board. Maybe he's just Relan- retired. Maybe he's just living off that first blood money. <laughs> or the total well recall money or the Terminator money or... In uh, November 2017, the new Carolco was renamed Recall Studios. Ah. Or so, I guess it could be Well, why recall. doesn't he have any credits since 2009? I'm sure it's just an just oversight. Living live in the dream, I guess. There are no oversights on IMDb, Chris. Let's live for the day when IMDb is actually paying us to do this podcast instead Uh, of us pirating off their intellectual property. Not that that's what we're doing. This could be a win-win instead of- Well, only if you start kissing their ass a little bit more than you're doing. Well, I think that- Kassar attempted to produce the now-shelved Bartholomew versus Neff, a John Hughes (laughs) film which would have starred Stallone and John Candy. Wow, I'm interested. See, like, that's why I want a time machine. (laughs) Oh, you had mentioned the the young woman in the um, club where Latour is with those- Yes. That uh, Tatiana von Furstenberg, Diane von Furstenberg's uh, daughter. Now, would you like to know a personal anecdote related to Tatiana von Furstenberg? You know, wow. You, you should see the look of Chris. Is, I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine him looking happier right now. <laughs> Please, wow. yes. Of all the things to make you happy. Well, in the, I want to say early 90s, pro- actually probably right around when this movie was filmed, I had a friend who went to Brown University. And I believe that Tatiana von Furstenberg and her brother Alex also both went to Brown University. At the time, it was known as having 
for lack of a better term, and no offense implied to the individuals in question, it was known for having a tier of students who were often referred to as Euro trash, which was sort of extremely wealthy people of European descent. I was surprised that didn't come up when talking about Tees, that that term. Tees is, is like the embodiment exactly. of this type of person who lived extremely well at what was a pretty liberal and kind of touchy-feely university, I mean, Brown University, right? Yeah. And we're not talking like Princeton, Yale, Harvard here. But anyway, I went to a party at Brown. Uh, Tatiana and her brother Alex were at this party. And I remember my friend pointing them out, and he was sort of peripherally in this Euro trash scene. And I sort of was like a tourist here, both to the Ivy League itself and to this Euro trash scene that my friends seemed to kind of want to be a part of, which I sort of reflexively and intuitively felt was kind of silly and ridiculous. Right. And they were like these stars, these tan, beautiful twins. I, I don't know. I, I keep thinking they're twins. I'm not sure. Um, this is one of those stories when you're deep into the story and too far to really get out, you realize there really is no story or end to this story other than- It's a good thing I can edit. There was a party, and um, I think that Alex von Furstenberg got into a fight and choked a guy a little bit, and then we left the party. Wow. And that was the last time I ever encountered See, I, I don't think of Eurotrash as being violent. Well- that's great. You but probably can't include that. I don't know. That might be a slant. That might be slander. I mean, if you're willing to testify, Something, well, you know, I stand under oath. I just remember in my very impressionable teenage year being <laughs> teenage sort of, year, just one. There was only one. <laughs> um, and then I, I grew up very quickly from there. I don't know if you have moments like this. I remember like with great specificity, this random moment, not because these people meant anything to me or because they were stars or celebrities, which certainly they weren't. I mean, I yeah. can't imagine that I knew who Diane von, Diane von Furstenberg was then, or even real. I mean, now I know who she is, but I certainly didn't know who she was then. I think these were just pointed out to me as like, Hey, those are two princelings of royalty and fame or something. And of course, just sort of staring and being like, who and what are these, these creatures? And then remembering that he got into this kind of brawl at the party. And um, it was a very weird weekend at Brown University. Let me just say that. So that's my well, great, great story, which you will cut out of entirely of the podcast. Are you kidding? On that this note. Will be on the, this will be left on the ground. I think please. we're going to change it from full cast and crew. To Brown stuff. I mean, only because you brought her up did I tell this. I just thought that story. was a. Because <laughs> I thought to myself I last night, I was like, <laughs> oh, I should tell the anecdote about how I was at a party with her. And, and her then brother. realized that it didn't and even then I was like, rise That's such a to bad an anecdote. Look for me to tell that as a story. It's like, oh, I was at a party once with Alex and, and Tati. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Suddenly, even, even well, more you know, informal. Tati. Our close friends call her Tati. Anyway, I'm just saying I lived the era, Chris. It was 92. It's probably, I mean, it probably was around the time they were in this movie because I'm sure Paul Schrader is like a bit of a society New York guy. Yeah. And I'm sure he encountered them and she's perfectly cast and her friend are perfectly cast as yes. the as the Euro girls in the club that they are in the scene in the movie that you're talking about. Yes. Um, so anyway, just be kind, Chris. When you, I'm sorry, when you, you cut uh, I'm a little, to you, to Tatiana to, to that story, to that, just to, that story. to me, to me, mostly, I think I'm I not think, saying not to include it, but I'm just saying if you do include it, please include some of the self-deprecating comments that came that surround me. It, it will not, it will not live on its he's own. He's not looking <laughs> me in the eye as he's telling me that and he has his fingers crossed. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that concludes think this it. episode of full cast and crew. Chris, I think this was our best episode yet. <laughs> After the first one, not a dog in the bunch. 
Now, uh, okay. Well, you know what? We don't know what order you're going to release these, so it doesn't even do any good to discuss what we're going to do right. next. That's right. We have to cut out. Because you may not put out the first one first or the second one second. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? People might not ever hear what we thought about Saturday I'm pretty night sure paper. no one will ever hear any of what <laughs> we're talking about right now. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I uh, just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at fullcastandcrew, or find us on Facebook.